Welcome to the Theory of Pro Wrestling, where we explore modern pro wrestling through the lens of storytelling and narrative devices. I'm Jordan Cooper, joined by the, the by the co-host of Strictly Business with Eric Bischoff, as well as the stream life of Matt Hardy, who are both going on the road very yep. shortly at, at the time of this recording. It's the Emmy Award winning John Elba. Hell yeah, man. Both going on the road. Matt Hardy's chirping with Jim Cornette. It's a wild, uh, wild west out there in the wrestling world. But, uh, but for for those that are listening, at least you know when this comes out, you're going to be the day before uh, the Boston, yes, Dynamite, and then you're also going to be in Maryland with with yes. the day before the Boston Dynamite, which is blood and guts. Matt Hardy and I are going to be at Kowloon, the legendary Kowloon, kind of like the Ribera Steakhouse of the U.S. for wrestling, outside of Boston. Doing the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy live. Get your tickets now, MattHardyLive.com. VIP available, general admission available. Going to be a very fun night in one of my favorite cities in all the country. And then Eric Bischoff and I will be at MCW Maryland Championship Wrestling Fan Jam, which is going to be July 23rd in Joppa, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore. And that is a free admission for the convention. And if you buy any Eric Bischoff meet and greet package, you will get free admission to our live show, which will be a live edition of 83 Weeks in Strictly Business. Should be very exciting. You ever been to either Boston or Baltimore there, Jordan? Yeah, of course. I've, I've been to Both Fenway Park. Cities. I've been to Camden Yards. I've been I've been to the old Memorial Park. Have you? Old Memorial Baltimore. Stadium? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The, oh, of those two, Fenway and Camden Yards, which do you prefer? I mean, from a, from an actual viewing standpoint, I mean... Camden Yards is is a is a better ballpark, but but Fenway Park is I mean, is it's like going to Wrigley Field. It's like it yep. doesn't matter that even the old Yankee Stadium, which I went to plenty of times when I was a kid, like it's a dump, but it's a it's a, it's a historic dump. Oh yeah, the first time I ever covered an event at Fenway Park was the time I knew I made it as a sports journalist. That was my like okay. You you accomplish what you set out to do, being in that press box at Fenway Park overlooking that historic field. It was amazing. So I can't wait to get back to Boston. Can't wait to get over to Joppa, just outside of Baltimore. Going to be a blast. Well, if you're not in those areas, Boston and Baltimore, but you'd still like to interact and talk about the business, talk about storytelling. Hell yeah. All right, we had uh, we had a, 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 a tape study, we call them, right? We, did. we had a tape study, 25th anniversary of the Goldberg versus Hogan match. Yeah. Wrestling according to Alba.com. You can watch the replay of that. Yes. You post all the videos, but mm-hmm. feel free to, to sign up. The, the cheapest tier gets you access to the Discord, which is a, a hoot in and of itself. <laughs> Four ninety nine um, a month, man. We got we got several new uh, members of Alba's army this past week too. So grateful for all their support. Grateful for your support, Jordan, and love doing theory of pro wrestling with you, man. Right, Goldberg versus Hogan. Would you consider during that time period for WCW that was like the biggest money babyface versus heel matchup that they could have done ever? Easily. And then nothing followed. So <laughs> it was <laughs> easily the biggest babyface versus heel. And maybe the fact that nothing followed shows that there was some degree of weakness in character presentation on one, if not both ends of the equation. And I think that's kind of along the lines of what we're going to look into this week on Theory of Pro Wrestling. Well, a lot of people considered Hollywood Hogan during that time period, the NWO in general, to be tweeners, Mm -hmm. right? We use this term tweener. I don't know if it's just that I was too young to notice. I never really heard that term before that time period. Before, Before the 90s, like in the 80s, 70s, in the territories, were there su- was there such a thing as tweeners or was that term even used to describe what that type of character was? I, I think we kind of talked about this last week on the podcast where I said to you, it really didn't happen until the mid 90s where there wasn't that hard drawn line between who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. Not just in wrestling. I feel like in greater media, you didn't really see that. It was always more or less clearly defined actions and this person is presented as good this person is presented as bad i feel like the anti-hero or the tweener wasn't really something we saw in media until the more modern times of the last 30 years or so especially with wrestling i can't think of many examples of guys who were 
the tweeners, aside from maybe some individuals who would jump from promotion to promotion, territory to territory, and go in and out of different characters, one territory, they're a heel, one territory, they're a babyface. So maybe their presentation becomes a little muddled along the way. But I, I can't think of anything, Jordan, prior to the NWO, where that truly was the case. Would you consider Ric Flair? Uh, Ric Flair would be a tweener, depending on, because it it seems like to me, Ric Flair, I thought was a more effective heel, right, with his character, but he was also universally beloved by plenty of people as the NWA champion. That depending on where he is, he didn't, his character didn't really change that much. And I think, like, to me, the definition, if you look it up online or what people typically assume what a tweener is, is that a character that is like morally ambiguous or neutral or a, a, someone that gets cheered, even though they do like vir- non-virtuous things. And then you also have people that are very virtuous that get booed, right? Because they're too, they're too virtuous. Suffering succotash. Right. Do you think that based on the last episode where, we 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 made the case that baby faces and heels are not defined by their moral stances and their character virtue and more by audience reaction that tweeners shouldn't be considered like what people consider like a tweener like stone called steve austin to be oh he was a tweener because he was kind of a bad guy but we loved him for it what wasn't steve austin just a baby face because i mean no one well, booed I- him I think Steve Austin is the anti-hero. He's he's the first true anti-hero in wrestling. And then he becomes a full-fledged babyface eventually where the anti-hero becomes the superhero uh, just based on A, in his case, crowd reaction, and B, his conviction led to him becoming the ultimate good guy. I think what you mentioned with Ric Flair, that was the name I was going to bring up because you could have Ric Flair where he was going back and forth between babyface and heel he'd walk into Dallas and face a Von Eric and he'd get booed because Von Eric's they're the super baby faces in the territory. Right. But Ric Flair carried this superstar aura about him that that wasn't just the gimmick, right? That's based off of the reactions he was genuinely getting where he would start to lean into that a little bit. So I think if you were looking for the first true example, it's probably him even more so than a Steve Austin type, but Austin very much did embody that for the very early beginnings of the stone cold character. Right. Cause I, I don't, I don't consider like that dynamic. Like I know it's a, it's a contrarian take because I think Austin is widely regarded as like the greatest tweener of all time. And I just view him as based on my definition to be, you know, he was a baby face. And in fact, I think that, his run as a babyface was marred by the era like that. I don't think I, I've never heard anyone bring this up and, and I, I'm making the, and this is why we do these shows. Cause I, I want to debate with someone that actually has, you know, historical knowledge that I think Austin's ability to be a babyface was more geared on the opponent, I think tweeners in general are more guided by their opponents than by who they are. Cause essentially tweeners never change their cat. Like stone cold was never a different person. The rock was never a different person, right? Ric Flair was never a different person. It's just, you either got booed depending on who you're facing. Right. So if you're, fa- if Ric Flair, if, if stone cold was facing uh, a baby face, it'd be much as a tweener. It's much, it, you may not, you may get booed because your character is still heel like. But in that era, in you know, the big boom in the late 90s, outside of Vince McMahon, once The Rock was too well liked to be a heel anymore. I mean, The Rock really didn't change. Corporate Rock was not much different than than People's Rock. I mean, his mannerisms, his his swagger, he was confident. He would, you know, crap on people, do all those promos. He didn't mind taking a chair and cheating every once in a while. Once, once the once the rock was can't be a heel anymore. Do you feel like that's what was kind of lost the luster on Austin's appeal? Is that there were no characters 
in the main in the main event scene because every the Undertaker couldn't be uh, a full fledged heel because people loved Triple H like him enough. Triple H was mostly a full fledged heel. Every now and then you'd see him pop a babyface program in like mid two thousand, early two thousand one, but he was. He was a heel. I mean, you think of Jim Ross going absolutely nuts. It's always about Triple H being a rat bastard. And I was surprised you didn't see more of Austin Triple H throughout those years. There was the sustained program in late 2000 between them. And, you know, he was the one ultimately responsible for him being run over by Rikishi. So I think he was probably the most heelish of all of them. But I, I I think you're definitely right in that there weren't too many vicious heels to really sway him in that baby face. If you had a pendulum, he wasn't swinging too much in that direction. But I also don't necessarily agree with the notion that Austin was a tweener. He was a tweener when his turn was starting to happen, when it started to become apparent that, okay, if we pair him with Vince McMahon, he's going to get these cheers, but we can still present him as this badass who's ruthless but i would say by beginning 1998 stone cold steve austin's popularity is indisputable as a good guy and he's going to get cheered no matter what so i I don't really agree and i'm not saying you're suggesting this notion but i don't agree with the general notion that austin was really a tweener past when he started to not be a full-blown heel because i think that goes along with our modern definition of what a baby face and a heel is, is that I never felt 1997 onward that Austin could come out against anyone and not get a 95 plus percent reaction from the crowd, no matter who he was up against. So to me, that defines a baby face to me, the close that to me, the, the quintessential tweener currently is John Moxley. Cause I look at John Moxley in a W and go, this guy since he came in in 2019, if I look at his character in 2019, I look at his character now, I don't notice there's, there's, no, there's he's nothing, there's nothing different from him, but he has the ability to come out as the same character and depending on the situation, be booed, and then in a, the following week be cheered, not without changing any part of his character whatsoever. And... Do you think that that's probably the most difficult thing as far as, you know, being, being a wrestler to do, to be, to how, how much skill does it take and how much over do you have to be in order to be booed one week and cheered the other week and not just have it be like 80, 20 on one side. And part of that correlates with booking. I feel like. And that's not something that the performer is going to have all that much control over unless they're in certain situations, obviously. I think as a performer, you're more than anything hoping for a reaction, whatever that reaction is, because then when you figure out what that reaction is, then you can start to figure out, okay, here's what I need to do to sway it in this direction. Here's what I need to do to sway it in that direction. Now, if there are situations like what you're alluding to where you never really know what kind of reaction you're going to get on a given week. I think that then falls on the performer to try and adapt parameters that are more easily definable by the audience that is watching them. Uh, That goes in correlation with what the booker's intended perspective is for this particular character. So they have to give the audience signals. So even if it's in match of like, I'm in, I, I'm looking to get heel heat or a babyface reaction that it's it's quintessential for the storyteller and the performer is still they part of the storytelling story. element to even though maybe it's not the most you know three-dimensional way to do it, that you know simply starting the match by you know sneaking up from behind mm-hmm. on the other character to be like, okay, the performer is sending a signal that they they want to be they, you're supposed to be rooting for the other guy at least now in this story but in a different story they wouldn't they they would maybe be fight, be fighting from underneath to a certain I mean, way who, who better to encompass that than Eddie Kingston right Eddie Kingston when he was a heel in AW is 
pretty much the exact same guy that he is right now. I, I can't really think of any differences other than maybe he is a little more confident in standing up for people. That's maybe it. He's essentially the same character. And that's a situation where Eddie Kingston was just getting undeniably cheered every single time that he came out. I mean, it took it from that first promo with Cody when he debuted. And there wasn't even a wrestling fan audience there. That was other wrestlers that were in the crowd. But you knew immediately, you're like, Man, I, don't, I don't disagree with anything this guy is saying. So he's presented as the traditional bad guy with the quintessential good guy at the time in Cody Rhodes. But when the audience doesn't find fault with the character, they're going to start treading that tweener line. So you think that's, that's the main thing with with tweeners is that the uh, that the audience do you think they that, find you think something endearing fault? about them they find something if they're if they're a heel they find something endearing about them if if they were a baby face and become a tweener it's because the audience finds something that they don't see as endearing about them because i think ultimately jordan it's all down to connection that we form with these talents and these performers and these characters if we connect with something well, then we're going to find them endearing and we're going to want to be behind them in their pursuit. If there's something that we find off-putting about their pursuit, about their character, that's when I think they start to straddle that line from good to bad. Do you think that modern audiences accept pure faces or heels from a virtue standpoint anymore? Because I take a look at what happened with like John Cena or classic would be Kurt Angle. Like Kurt Angle comes out, he gets introduced. He's a gold medal winning American hero and drinking his milk, you know, doing all that stuff. And Vince McMahon told him, it's like, you're going to get booed out of the building. It's like, how the hell is this character? Because you're, 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 you're so virtuous that the audience thinks that you're above them. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, you can't be that virtuous. And then on the other side, there are characters that are such good heels. They're such bad, bad guys. Like they're so good at it that the audience wants to see them, right? That, that yeah. they're like, like you, like you can't be that bad and get a hundred percent bad reaction. Cause eventually you're going to be, you're going to be the cool heel. And that's a mentality that has shifted over time, right? Like back in the seventies and the early to mid eighties, if you were really good at being a bad guy, you had batteries thrown at you. Now that doesn't happen anymore. That, that now it's cinema. Even, now it's cinema. <laughs> even, even MJF, who is fantastic at being a bad guy, you find something endearing about him. Because I think the best heels are entertaining heels. And if someone is entertaining, well, then the crowd's going to get behind them in some capacity. Wrestling is a form of entertainment at the end of the day. But do you think the reason for that is because modern audiences view wrestling more as an entertainment art form than one hundred? These are real people, one hundred percent. And I and again, that's part of the mentality shift in the audience over the last twenty five years in wrestling has been let in on the gag. They've been let in on the bit. They know, hey, this is all a bit. You're part of it. And because of that shift, because of that change, we don't view these bad guys in the traditional sense that we used to and i think it does extend beyond wrestling jordan i think we see it in all forms of media when heath ledger is the joker in the dark knight everyone's like that dude freaking ruled he was amazing he was entertaining he was gripping that's a villain that he's a terrible person but man did i enjoy the hell out of that it's similar in that sense in my well, I, I'm glad you brought up that example because I think if you if you iron it out to how na how narratives work in in novels, that I think the true definition, ninety nine percent of the time, on what a tweener is, is a character that can get that would get cheered as the protagonist, but booed as the antagonist. So in a story where let me, I take a look at John Moxley, right? John Moxley, when he's, he's after something, he's the protagonist. He's, he's the, oh, someone is obstructing him from his goal. 
We cheer him, but in the recent times, he's been the antagonist against Hangman Adam Page. He's been with the BCC as antagonists against the elite. And because he's in the end, we don't see he we don't see him having a goal. We see him obstructing another person's goal that because he has not changed his character traits, he is morally ambiguous. He is what he is that basically he's framed like it's very easy to see in novels on protagonist antagonist because we don't view the antagonist as having a like what does the antagonist want other than to obstruct the protagonist obviously better stories have a mix of both but do you think in, in professional wrestling since we're we're very we're, we're fit into this box of so much stuff that we can do that really if, if you look throughout the history of the past 25 30 years of tweeners that the ones that get cheered when they get cheered, they're almost always the protagonist. And when they get booed, they're almost always the antagonist. Yeah. I mean, almost always. That is traditionally how it's been. Moxley has changed a few visual cues. Like, I mean, there have been matches where he's like flipped off the audience and stuff like that. And maybe that goes back to what you're saying earlier, where someone, when they're trying to just clearly establish that they're a heel, they do one little thing to remind the audience of that, whatever it may be. And I think that's a small visual cue that a talent can lean into by disrespecting people or the fabled you people promo is always a way to establish that, whether it is tropey or not. I would love, love to see a pro wrestling antagonist follow the path of, say, what we've seen with Loki, for those of you who follow the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where Loki is the big bad heel in the first Avengers movie. Over a period of time, he remains bad, but you start seeing glimpses that this guy could actually be an anti-hero. Then he becomes an anti-hero before eventually becoming essentially a full-blown babyface. And I would love to see an arc like that in modern pro wrestling where someone along the lines of an MJF follows that path. And I think you could maybe relate it, Jordan, perhaps similarly to the summer of punk back in 2011. And you correct me if I'm wrong. You weren't watching at that time. No, no. So I I only have the recaps and and video (sighs) packages. So CM Punk, you know, he starts as a good guy when he gets called up and that doesn't last very long. It lasts a couple of years and, Becomes a heel, a self-righteous heel who genuinely believes he's doing for the greater good. The Straight Edge Society. Are you familiar with the Straight Edge Society that he did? Again, virtuous. Right, overly Uh, virtuous. Very similar to Daniel Bryan doing, you know, the uh, the environmentalist gimmick. Very much so. 2010 rolls around. He's the leader of the new Nexus. It is what it is, but it's a similar purpose as the Straight Edge Society. And then when his contract is coming up, he cuts this pipe bomb promo that everyone talks about. And he starts saying, he's like, listen, you you people can boo me all you want, but I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to tell you how it really is. And in in doing so, he starts standing up for the people just a little bit. If, If inadvertently, he did. And because we see how gripping it was all of a sudden people start becoming attached to it. And we start seeing this change in his character where the more traditional heels are thrown in his obstacle path as a, as opposed to him just running through John Cena or other baby faces, our truth or whoever. And then by the end of this arc here, he has become a full blown baby face of the people. I think to see that in the modern era, especially in a company like AEW, where I think it could be accomplished. I'd be very into something like that. I think they could have done something like that, Jordan, with Kenny Omega. Uh, had they fleshed that out a little more, quite frankly. I thought he also, I mean, he was out for so long. I'm saying coming out of the injury. Right. Coming out of the injury. I think you could. You think, don't you think Roman Reigns could be on that path? I think Roman Reigns also? could absolutely be on that path. 100%. But then also when you have people taking that path, you need an equally as menacing and believable villain. And I don't know if WWE has that yet. 
So so it comes it comes back to the point that I was making that that tweeners more than anyone else re- rely on that like the situational role. We see it in a match. I mean, John, you go on the indep- you go on the independence where maybe you're not you're not being exposed to long-term storytelling mm-hmm. and it's just like someone has to come in. I mean, I to me in recent in recent memory only because I watch GCW is that I'll watch Ring of Honor and Blake Christian is all heart Blake Christian teaming with Metalik and AR Fox and they're you know they're the baby faces and then GCW he's like the the top heel champion that gets booed do you think that situ- that tweeners need to like in inside inside of a I'm talking about more inside of a match mm-hmm. that tween that without those signals we mentioned before the flipping off the crowd and stuff stuff like that do you think that I mentioned this before about being over because I'm just thinking of if let there there are lower card tweeners right we have like we that guys that are like in the middle and you go you could I think recent recent turn I mean he's Slightly turning, people turn a little slower than others. But like an Ethan Page, yeah, an AEW, an LA LA Knight, right. mm-hmm. in in WWE, that that can only be effective. Like, okay, we're gonna we're now gonna, you know, if LA Knight starts getting paired off with you know heels, Austin once, Theory. Once, once he goes against Dominic Mysterio, you know that the the storyteller is signaling you very 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 brightly that. This is the guy that we want you to be. This is the protagonist of the story. You know, turn from an 80-20, a 70-30 into a 95-5. You can't really do that for tweeners that, like, no one cares enough about where it's like, oh, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll boo. I'll boo. I always bring up the butcher and the blade. I don't know why, but, like, it just, like, characters that it's like, oh, like, I don't mind seeing on TV. I don't not like them house of black i think is a, is maybe a, a good example in AEW of like i could boo brody king but i could also cheer brody king but is brody king at the level where that he could that the the the, the opponent that that he could drive his own story and it's not purely based on well against no. darby allen he's gonna get booed but like, it's it's not like the LA Knights. It's not no. like those examples of where I, it's clear that that it's being driven by the character and not the. Opponent. Well, and that's exactly it. I think it's it goes back to what I was saying before, where that is then on the performer to flesh out the elements of the character, where you can decisively drive an audience in a certain direction, based on, you know, if you're getting those mixed reactions, oh, they could go either way here. That character that we see in the realm of the story has to be ironed out enough to the point where there is clear jurisdiction as to where this person stands on that spectrum. To the audience. To the audience. Correct. Right, because it's the audience reaction that matters more than anything. Of course. I mean, that's eliciting emotion eliciting reaction that is the fiber of professional wrestling that is the reason that we're sitting here talking about theory in pro wrestling do you think that audience reaction dictates character turns more than anything even like planned story like obviously the storyteller the company the promotion the bookers the producers have here's this story that we're planning on telling out and they're assuming that it's going to be effective. And as I mentioned in previous podcasts that like as a stand-up comic, like I get, I would, I would get immediate feedback. I could tell after like three or four sets, whether or not this joke connects, do they get the premise? Do I have to reword something like you're getting that immediately? Wrestling doesn't have really that, like they're going to plan something out and it's quite possible that halfway through they're like, this ain't going to work because of audience reaction do you think that no. that the better that the story I don't I don't want to like put words in your mouth but do you think that better stories are told when they're planned meticulously right regardless of the audience's 
involvement because you trust in your story enough that the audience will come around to it? Or do you think that storyline development and character turns are much, much more dictated by the audience well, than anything else? It's funny because in any other form of media, you wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Like, <laughs> we, we don't have a TV series being written for a season. You know, they write out their season arc and they don't adjust the arc three quarters of the way through the season based on audience reaction. Well, I think soap operas do. Well, soap operas. Okay, soap operas are the one, but that's also because soap operas are a daily television right, show. Right, well, soap where, operas are more... Uh, pro wrestling is more it's, similar, it's more to, similar soap to soap opera than anything, opera else. Than anything yeah. else. Correct, correct. Um, but I'm talking about your traditional 22-episode drama, comedy, whatever it may be. You're not going to have that. A movie does not write five different scripts <laughs> and shoot five different versions and air different versions based on how the audience is receiving the movie. I'd love that. They should. <laughs> they should do that. I agree with you. Uh, maybe the flash. They, they, they get better. more people in the box office. It's like, if you go to the, if you go to the theater, Ooh, which version like, oh, did I get? <laughs> right. Who's like, Oh, we were all cheering this guy. So we got that ending. And now I've got to go see it again and hope that, that we get the reaction so that this ending happens. I think you, I think you pitched a solid idea. <laughs> Rebooking movies would be a podcast, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, listen, I, I think that wrestling, because it has that live reaction nature to it, the pressure does fall on the storyteller to become somewhat, I don't want to say reactive, but also cognizant of reactions that a story is getting you have to be aware because there are going to be so many times it's just kind of like what you said with the stand-up you plan out something in your mind when you're telling these stories you think this is how this is going to get a reaction you think this is how they're going to respond to this character or this story beat and then they don't the amount of times that i've been involved in indie wrestling segments jordan where i'm like i'm pretty sure this is the reaction we're going to get from doing this and it turns out to be the entirely different reaction. Uh, it's nerve wracking. It can be annoying as a performer. But then I do think it falls on you to take that and say, okay, what do we need to lean into now to get the desired reaction that we're trying for? And if after a certain amount of attempts, you realize you're just never going to get that reaction you have to find a way to turn the story on itself. Do, do and, you also, you uh, uh, not to interrupt, sure. do you also use those times as learning tools for future use? Very similar to like I mentioned about stand-up. Of like, uh, you know, I could say that this joke should work perfectly. And then after three times, it doesn't work perfectly. I go, I have to learn from this and do something different or cut it out or, or whatever. There's, so, there's something wrong with this rather than, Say, well, this is the way that it was planned. And three different audiences have told you that you've gotten the completely opposite reaction. Do you how how do you how do you shift from that avenue? Because I think that the major wrestling promotions with TV every week have the have the ability to do that. I I I I give a lot of leeway to some companies that are like, oh, they you could tell that they planned on the way the story was going to play out for these first two weeks. And then they're like, Oh no, no, they're shifting the other way. Cause they see that it's not working. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to shit on like the first two weeks of the storytelling until I see how it all plays out. I just don't, I just don't like the turns where it's like, Oh, we're going to do everything that we plan to like the 95% mark. And then at the last 5%, we're going to do something that's completely illogical because we we've, We've already planned these three months out and yeah. they're obviously not getting over. And then we're just going to turn someone. And it's like, isn't, isn't the better example. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. Uh, the better version of storytelling and wrestling that I think AEW does a lot better than WWE. Uh, I'm not saying they do it perfectly is they give you breadcrumbs that they may not use. A hundred percent. Sake of at some point, I, I, at some point, we know we've been given foreshadowing enough. At some point, God knows when, Jamie Hayter will turn on Britt Baker, or vice versa, or vice versa, or, or vice. Versa. Something will happen because we've been shown breadcrumbs that, for the current storyline, 
we could ignore. I mean, like it's like, oh, they're they're fine now and everything. But when it does happen, we will have been left with pieces of information that has have foreshadowed that from a storytelling perspective. And it's when you don't leave those breadcrumbs. And by leaving the breadcrumbs, they reserve the right to do this two years from now or tomorrow. That's what the whole bloodline story is built on. All the breadcrumbs that they left along the way. And there were a lot of them. Whether they were purposeful or not, who's to say? But they had the luxury of using them and they leaned into them. And I think that you're 100% right, Jordan, in that you give yourself ways out of stories that may or may not be working should you be conscious enough to leave those things behind in the first place. But you don't think that many... I mean, in the history of pro wrestling, you see more non-organic turns. Like when we say a turn, we're essentially we're saying that a, a character is going from like a 95% plus positive reaction to we now want to have them to have a 95% plus negative reaction. From a storytelling perspective, it it almost makes no sense that that, that could happen without completely retconning like a ton of character development because it always comes down to like, well, I've resented you for the past two years, even though I showed no signs of it or the you people obviously of like, well, you were cheering them. And now that was the problem. Don't you you think that, that so much in the late nineties, we, we applaud like the attitude era of, Oh, the big boom. But dude, like, like every other week there was someone going from being like 95% cheered to 95% booed. And their motivations and justifications were just like flying out of nowhere, like just like complete swerves. Do you think now that it's that the audience just doesn't put up with just just doesn't accept that storytelling as much anymore? No, they don't. They don't. And I think you saw a clear rejection in that when Becky Lynch turned on Charlotte back in 2018, or when she turned on Bianca also well and i was gonna get to that too but in 2018 in particular where becky lynch was just winning a whole bunch of matches everyone was really digging her getting this little run and being on a path to win the women's championship and then she just turned on charlotte because charlotte was going to be the golden goose and she needed a heel opponent and Oh, I've I've never liked you people, even though Becky was like riding the momentum of the people for months leading up to it didn't make sense. So people rejected that because that was a very tropey way of doing it. And they rejected it because they knew there was no authenticity to that turn. It didn't also, make they sense. They wanted to cheer, but also it has nothing to do with that. They wanted to it that for, from they from, want to cheer her over, Charlotte. right? From our perspective, remember we're we're defining baby faces and heels not by virtue but by audience reaction. And if the audience is cheering you, you're a baby face. So you could do the most non-virtuous shit you want, but if you're still getting cheered, it doesn't matter anymore. And that's what happened with her second heel run with Bianca, as you were alluding to. She comes back after the pregnancy to this surprise moment where she beats Bianca Belair and we could do an entire episode on that that moment in and of itself if you really wanted to at some point because I don't think I've ever been as mad about betraying two characters at once as I was in that particular moment but uh, the fans rejected it because it wasn't consistent with them and it wasn't earned action that's where the issue lay when it comes to turn to a turn the action has to be earned. And if it's unearned, people are going to see right through it. So what do you, what would you consider to be over the past, you know, whether it be 25 years ago or currently turns that were earned? Mm-hmm. I would say. Do you think Seth Rollins turning on the shield was earned? Because I don't think so. No, I wouldn't use that one. Especially because the shield was like stronger than ever coming out of those evolution matches. So I wouldn't say that that was an earned turn. I would say the Brian Danielson, the Daniel Bryan babyface turn was an earned turn. I think that. But I think you see more, I mean, John, I think you um, see more earned 
babyface turns because mm-hmm. the, the performer gets cheered too much that it's undeniable. It's typically the, the swerve type of turns are when babyfaces turn heel out of Yeah, point. I would say when Sami Zayn turned and lined with Kevin Owens in 2018, I would say that was a fairly earned turn based on his character's trajectory at the time. Um, I would say, I mean, the fact that also that I can't like just rattle them off either right. shows you how difficult it is. Uh, Ma- I, I, Ma- I mean, Macho no, Man. Please. Macho Man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think I think Macho Man against Hogan was that was more of an earned turn mm-hmm. than especially for that era. Because of that era, I mean, dude, you go from, I mean, like, it was like snap of a hat. All of a sudden, you're the most villainous bad guy. And then all of a sudden, you're the most glorious baby face. But I mean, but you, you get the point that from a storytelling perspective, it's so much harder. As I think the better storytellers are ones that understand that baby faces and heels are defined by audience reaction more than anything else. That if... A guy, it's it's much easier for a heel to start being liked than a baby face starting to be hated. Truthfully, the most organic turn that could have happened, that never happened, was John Cena. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that would have been an earned turn at some point, too. Especially with the Rock stuff in 2012. That that would have been very earned, in, in fact. Yeah, you're 100% right on that front. And Cody, Cody Rhodes before he left AEW. Cody, that would have been an earned turn as well if that had actually happened. No doubt about that. Um, I think I maybe would... maybe Eddie Eddie against Ray. I, I think that's an earned turn. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eddie Eddie was before that before that feud. Eddie was predominantly a more of a baby face, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, he was coming out of his WWE Championship run, right? So, yeah, he was. The fact that we can't list that many. Shows how difficult it is to turn baby faces into into heels that are getting booed, rather than heels baby faces that are now doing like morally bad things. Yeah, and listen, a Roman Reigns heel turn would have been earned years ago. Coming out of the Royal Rumble in 2015, that was all you needed for an earned heel turn for Roman Reigns. You guys rejected me in the biggest moment of my life. <laughs> Fuck you guys. But he didn't like even that? have to do it. You people, all you have to no, do is no, position. no. I know all they had to do was position Daniel Bryan against him, and Bryan I understand that. The I'm saying right. that that you people promo would have been an earned you people promo <laughs> because it would have made. Dude, that was the biggest. I had my my cousin, the great one, the guy that you all love, like without reserve. He endorsed me, and you still said fuck you to me. So fuck you guys too. Like that. I mean, that was it. I mean, one of my one of the best times during where someone was getting a heel reaction and they were baby faces that they did pull the trigger on turning, and we saw the merit that it had with it, and what it ultimately paid off with was the new day. The new day were presented as I was there, 2015, Royal Rumble, this show that we're talking about. I was at that show, and we all think about Roman. But I can't stop thinking about how vicious the crowd was to New Day that day. And they were the preaching baby faces coming out and they were vicious to them. And eventually by WrestleMania, they turned them. And within a month, they were getting cheered because we saw that they then were able to lean into these very entertaining elements of their characters that eventually willed them back to the baby face side of the spectrum. But do you think that type of stuff screws with the ability of the storyteller to have control of like the narrative, because I could see now producers, the creative team for any major weekly televised promotion to be like, well, I mean, we saw with the Cody example, I think, I mean, Cody literally had a promo literally, literally did a meta promo saying that, that, I know you guys want me to turn heel and I'm not going to. <laughs> and it's almost like, I'm not sure in Cody's mind. It's like one of these leveling games of like, do you know that by you saying that you're actually going to get booed more? And did you intend on that to happen? Or did you intend on, on turning babyface? Like I think that whole period of Cody Rhodes before he left hard. AEW 
could be studied in and of itself on on just I, I would I would listen to a Conrad podcast of just the for just those six months with Cody Rhodes to figure out what what were you intending? What was the trajectory? Because some some people like me are going like Cody knows better. Like I almost put put it in like Cody knows better. So this is he's pulling out the Triple H stuff with the golden shovel. And it's like, like, dude, this would be a great story. He, if he lit turned... himself on fire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he lit himself on fire. Like, yeah, but I thought, I thought it's like, okay, this, this would be a brilliant way of developing into getting to the point where he reneges on his, on his stipulation, yeah. stipulation and becomes the heel world champion mm -hmm. of AEW. And it's like, now, now I understand all the storytelling and then, then at some points where you're like, is he thinking that, or, or is he, or is he just no? Is he just desperate so to try to. Get I don't here? think he. I don't think he was ever thinking that, Jordan, because that was at the time that was my natural reaction too. I was like, okay, he's going to be self righteous, and he's eventually going to turn, and he will renege on the stipulation and undo all that. I think from some context clues from things I've heard, I think Cody genuinely believe that by him leaning into all of this, people would come around and be like, Oh, that guy gets it. He's like self-aware enough and understands and he's appreciating our voice. I think that's what the thought process was. It was never going to work, but uh, no, like ever, ever going to work. But as we saw, it didn't, in fact, it pushed him out of the company, quite frankly. And we got to where we are right now with Cody Rhodes, where the irony being Cody Rhodes in his presentation now is exactly how he envisioned himself as far as presentation in AEW. He, you could not ask for a better baby face in pro wrestling right now. He is Jordan. You were talking about earlier, like, is there a consummate good guy baby face that fans will get behind here without reservation? That's Cody Rhodes right now. Do you think this, this is an interesting question. Do you think, because this involves turns, Mm -hmm. that I don't want to, I don't want to call the WWE audience like dumb or anything or the AEW audience smarter, but in Canon. So we just think Canon wise, we know that WWE typically doesn't present anything outside of WWE as like part of their own Canon mm -hmm. that the reason why Cody could present himself the way that he was looking to present himself in AEW at that point he didn't want to do it in the beginning from, I think from a more of a political reason of didn't want to appear as, you know, being like triple H being the, the reign of Cody Rhodes terror that he has to be the top guy of his own company that the AW crowd didn't accept him at the, at the, you know, beginning of 2022 because we're the, the audience is smart enough that they're using the canon of Cody Rhodes post WWE not not the stardust they're just this guy got big did it on its own whatever like that and now now we view him as i think he, he's he's his, his head is too big right now now like no no you're not you're i know i know this is your company right but well, he we solved, he solved racism right but but that but that's what the audience has seen mm -hmm. so he's trying to be full-fledged babyface and we're going we're going back to all the stuff that you've done and go, this is stuff that, like you said before, we don't find endearing and you're not doing anything to help that. You're actually doing more of the stuff that we didn't find endearing, but then he goes, goes back to WWE and obviously people, when they see someone new and whatever people, you know, typically have a baby face reaction, but WWE has presented Cody Rhodes as the prodigal son has returned from six years. He he's, he was stardust before, and now he's this like we don't view him as like no, he was the top guy of another promotion, and now he's positioning himself up. So, it what was the babyface, if you want to call it the Cody Rhodes babyface turn in AEW, like doomed to fail because he wasn't aware of the differences in canon the audience in AEW had for reference material versus yeah, WWE. I think he might not have been ready for that vitriol. And and also, I think he probably felt he had, and I'm, this is me putting words in his brain and his mouth, so I 
don't take this as fact. But I, I think he probably expected because he had earned all this goodwill in the years prior to AEW and the beginning of AEW that the fans wouldn't turn on him like that. I think that was a big part of Cody's presentation. I think that's the fans turned on him. I, 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 I can make the case because I was, I was there. Me and my wife were at the DC show his last, when his last promo with the ladder, Mm -hmm. we were there. You know what me and my wife were doing? We were booing. You know what me and my wife going into that show was looking forward to the most seeing Cody Rhodes. And as the audience going, he's obviously like, this seems like he's turning like, so I'm going to do my part and boo him, right? Like you understand what I mean by, I think the 80, that the ADW audience didn't want, wasn't booing because they wanted Cody to go away. They no, not because he wanted to go away. The plan was. I, maybe at some point, but I don't think initially that was it. I, no, think I agree. Initially, I, initially he kind of turned some people off. Yes. I think, it, I think all of that happened because people got turned off initially and then you see the avalanche effect of that yeah but then then people got on board and be like okay if he's doing this on purpose then we're gonna we'll right. play along with it but and I, it I, seemed like cody is like why are you playing along with it and, right i don't i mean and, and, and it always came back to me in my head going cody rhodes has so much more experience in the wrestling industry than like almost anyone on earth because he's grown up in the industry sure. his father was a booker for crying out loud mm-hmm. i'm like this guy has to get it so i'm just i think the audience looked in so much into like cody obviously gets this so yeah we kind of turn on him a little but obviously he's leaning into this in a very unique way that maybe we haven't seen in pro wrestling so let's let let's let's boom i don't think he was i don't right but that's but but you can understand how the how the audience you would think that you would think that and that's because things have changed in wrestling right that Mm -hmm. goes back to our initial point things have changed where when you start to see certain crowd reactions, a lot of performers recognize that and they try to harness that. I don't think Cody was doing that. And it brings back memories of the whole Batista thing with Daniel Bryan too, where circumstantially people wanted to cheer Daniel Bryan and not Batista. Yeah, but Cody didn't have that in a. It's not no, like, no, but, like Cody was at. People wanted to cheer someone else. I mean, but what Cody I'm was saying is his own universe. But what I'm talking very much the Cody verse. But what I'm saying is, rather than harnessing that, they were resistant to it. Now, eventually, WWE did roll with it and harnessed it, but for so long they were resistant to it. And I think Cody was very resistant to it because I really feel like deep down Cody believed that he'd be able to get people back on his side. It didn't happen. Is that a fair, but it, do you, do you believe, like you said before, that's a failure of understanding that it's, that it's not 1984 and you can't just will that to happen. I think it taught Cody a very valuable lesson about characters and booking. I really do believe that. And that's why in WWE, I think he's been presented and he comes across as like, he's learned, I think maybe he's learned from that going. That's what I'm saying. I need, I need to, I need to tone down anything that could come across as self-righteous because once, because they look, I mean, look at who is he opposed well, to so much. Cena, Triple, like kind of that type of like, he doesn't know generous Jordan. He has been to other talent in WWE. It, remember when Sami Zayn was getting all the attention and Cody had won the Rumble? Rather than making it about Cody, he was like, no, I want you to go in and beat Roman Reigns because I'd rather face you because this is your moment right now. This is your time right now. Some people viewed that as self-righteous. I, I, but you see, I, did, I didn't view that as self-righteous. I, I thought that was a really safe way and a good way to play that story. Don't be like, hey, remember, this is all about me at the end of the day. I'm the one with the... It's No, you go beat him. I, I don't care if I have to face Roman Reigns or face you at WrestleMania. That doesn't matter to me. It doesn't have to be Roman Reigns for me. I just want the opportunity. And if you're going to be the guy that's going to beat Roman Reigns, then awesome. I'm in your corner. You go do that. And I thought that was a very, very smart way to tell that story because I think the crowd could have very easily turned on Cody had it been all about Cody. 
Well, I mean, we're talking about the bloodline, like the the, the cinema storyline of the century of whatever. Greatest things in sliced bread. What is the balance? Because we, we, we talked, you know, to, to wrap everything up, we, we talked about, you know, swerve turns are kind of like the audience doesn't. I mean, they happen. They happen all too often, but I don't think they they're not anywhere near as effective. More people are willing to just go, oh, OK, I guess this came out of nowhere. It's something. It's better than nothing. Right. But it's better than nothing. Is there a balance on making because what people like a lot of times you ask someone, what do you enjoy so much about pro wrestling storytelling? And they go, I like it when unpredictable things happen. And if you go back to the late 90s, boy, totally unpredictable things happen all the time. But Doesn't make I still good. think <laughs> I still think people are saying that within the realm of, of logic and canon and something, you know, I'd like to see unpredictable results. I'd like to see characters change but maybe not change on a dime. But is there is there a point in which turns become too telegraphed that like the it's jungle not, boy? It's one, not perhaps? as compel. It's not as compelling. Like the Jungle Boy one, perhaps. I don't think that. I, I'm not. Sure, I think I don't think the Jungle Boy one was like. I think that was done well. I think it was telegraphed. I think, but I think it was telegraphed well. Mm -hmm. I think. I think in a previous era, people wouldn't have have caught on to it as quickly okay. because I think more people are aware of how pro wrestling okay. storytelling happens. And that's why you have to kind of meta shift on mm -hmm. what you do. But I'd much rather, truthfully, I'd much rather that type of turn than the Shayna Baszler just attacking her best friend yeah didn't see that one no <laughs> and and you know for what it's worth jordan that might be a turn that was just circumstantial more than anything based on what some of the reports out there seem to indicate yeah but we don't I, care I, about booking from an audience perspective i don't care about no that. no i was gonna say now that doesn't mean you had to do it that way per se mm. uh, but uh, it does seem like that was somewhat circumstantial I think turns can be a little telegraphed. Like, for example, we all knew that Swerve and our glory were going to split. We knew that Swerve was going to be the one that was going to go heel between the two of them. And you can argue that maybe it should have happened a little later. Maybe it should have happened a little earlier. You could go either way with it. I happen to think the turn in that was actually very well done. It was the execution that followed that failed that turn. Uh, so when you see things coming from a mile away, I think some of the fun in figuring it out is how is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? What are the motivations going to be? And I don't think that stuff is mutually exclusive to a turn being telegraphed because those things can play separately from one another. And a telegraph turn can still play well if all those other elements are there and the character is defined. I think a, a good uh, analogy to other forms of of entertainment, TV, film, are the, when the story is presented as a third party narrator. I think it's much more acceptable to be telegraphed. So we'd see, for instance, we see. I mean, we see a lot of times in like crime dramas. We know who did it. But we're watching, we like the character that we're seeing doesn't know that that we we know who the bad guy is, but the protagonist doesn't know who the bad guy is. And we're sitting there for a half an hour towards the end of the movie going, you can't trust him. You but that's the reaction that the storyteller wants. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. They're telegraphing that this that dude, the guy, the Bruce Willis shows up and, you know, and, and the, oh, he's acting like he's one of the, the capture, you know, the, the, the hostages. It's like, no, no, that that's Hans Gruber that like you, you got him. We all, the audience knows this, but the entertainment is the reaction from the audience going, when is he going to figure it out? And how is he going to figure it out? And how is he going to figure it out? So it's a much, it's much, you could be, you can tell a compelling story, mm -hmm. even knowing the, when the audience knows the ending, everyone knew that the Usos were going to turn on Roman. That's not a surprise. Know. I mean, come on now. 
Everyone knew, but, but it's because Jordan. Everyone was anticipating it. Everyone wanted it. You you were ready for that. Or Sam? Or I think more likely Sam. We knew Sammy too. was gonna yeah. was gonna eventually turn, but we didn't know. Like the most incredible part of that, the end of the Royal Rumble, I think, was less Sammy turning, but more Jey Uso walking out. Because mm-hmm. that's something. It's like that fits, but mm, I wasn't necessarily expect. Okay, what they define these characters so well. That you could see the you could see the multiple branches, and I talked about this, you know, on uh, the recent uh, Ask Alba, right? Wrestling according to Alba.com. You do a stream like every week, several streams every week, several streams every week. You should <laughs> join us for for similar conversations. Yes. But but I talked I talked about like I I think turns, regardless of how telegraphed they are, work best when the audience can see. Where it's going, but see like five different ways that it can go. And then it's enjoyable to see which of the five or if any, maybe it's a sixth one that we never predicted logically. I think it's less compelling where we see where it's going and there's really only one branch. And it's just a matter of when, not how. And I think the the better wrestling storytellers are ones that allow for multiple paths that yeah, I mean, we all knew hangman page was gonna be kenny omega for that championship it was just how do we get there and there were multiple paths taken that i think a lot of people weren't necessarily expecting and that made for a great story at the end when we knew austin was gonna find finally beat vince mcmahon right 100%. imagine they, imagine they run ran that out for three and a half years Oh, you can't say drag it out. You get yelled at for saying drag it out. Oh, why can't you say drag it out? Because I got yelled at in the press conference for saying, suggesting to Paul Levesque that the bloodline story was being dragged out a little bit. Because dragged out is is a, a bad term, Jordan. It's negative connotation, apparently. So what? So what's the better way of saying that? Extending it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> From, at the at the current moment with the bloodline st- st- uh, story, with now Jay Uso, you know that they obviously they turned. The Usos are now baby faces. Roman and Solo, you know Roman got pinned, right? And we could talk about that on on future episodes. Do you think that? Do you change? Let I'm going to do the check in. You were very vocal. Because it goes along with tweeners and turns. So, like, I, I figure ask it here of anything. You're very vocal on Cody not finishing the story that Roman Roman wins, LOL, solo Sokoa interference. Now we see a lot of people are like, oh, no, I think Jay, Jay Uso should be the one to to take that. Like, maybe it is better this way. Do you? What do you recollect? And now it's been four months or whatever. No, I mean, my thoughts haven't changed at all on it, quite oh. frankly. I... I I think all of this you could have accomplished even with Roman losing to Cody at WrestleMania. I really do believe that. You wouldn't have had the reaction to Jay pinning him in this one moment at Money in the Bank in particular, but you still could have told the story of Jay wanting to prove that Roman is flawed and that maybe he's not the tribal chief that he thinks he is and the personal vindication that all could have been accomplished whether or not Roman Reigns had the championship, in my opinion. Right, because I think I think the characters involved in this story are interesting. The characters I, supersede the title, right? Well, I think they're more interesting. To me, I'm more interested in the bloodline story on what is Jimmy's stand, what is Jay's stand. You could see that they're putting in the breadcrumbs on Solo, like maybe I'm the tribal chief, right? Mm-hmm. But to me, that's a good story of like yeah. maybe Solo just stays with Robin, but they put it in that. Maybe he turns next week. Maybe he turns six months from now. Maybe he cost him the title at WrestleMania against Cody. Who knows what it's going to be? What? Where does Heyman stand on it? Because we have Heyman. Heyman, dude, Heyman was fired by Roman. Roman didn't trust Heyman in the Brock Lesnar stuff. So it's Heyman like. Heyman has a history of turning his back on people. So Right. So like, to me, that's so much more interesting than like who has the, the world title. 100%. And, and that's why I still. Stand by my previous proclamation that it was an all-time bad decision. But they might 
find themselves in a position where they can rectify it. And to their credit, Jordan, if they've been able to extend this story to next year's WrestleMania and Cody Rhodes is just as over as he was at WrestleMania 39, then I guess I'm wrong. So but do, do you think that 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 the reason why the bloodline story is is so over is m- more gleans towards what we talked about today and yeah. and that and that the episode the last episode that very well three-dimensionally defined characters yeah. that have the paths to ch- like Sami Zayn changed, Jay Uso changed, Jimmy changed. All these characters changed and there are not there are other characters on this show Tons of other characters that you feel are like, like what 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 did what is changed with uh, with Finn Balor or Seth Rollins, and it just feels like like there's there's no intrigue on any type of motivations or why there's no breadcrumbs thrown in. There's no there's nothing to hold on to other than well, I like that guy and I want to see him win. The and that's reason the story has been so effective and memorable is not because of the writing of it per se or the matches that have come out of it. It's because you care about these central characters more than you have cared about any WWE character since CM Punk in 2011. That's why it's been so effective. Or Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan. Okay, I'll give you Daniel Bryan. I'll give you Daniel Bryan too. Uh, But aside from those two, you haven't cared about a WWE character like how you've cared about these. And that's why it's been so effective. But also, you care about them in a non-title reason. That's what I mean. You don't. It's not about. I can't wait to see Jey Uso win the championship. That's not what you care about. You care about how Jey Uso beating Roman Reigns affects their family dynamic, and there's pecking order within their own bloodline. That's effective storytelling. Well, if you want to hear more about effective storytelling, obviously join John Alba's Patreon and Discord community. Wrestling according to Alba. Com. And if you're not subscribed to Theory of Pro Wrestling, what are you doing? Jordan is crushing it right now. He's got a show with his wife. His wife, the casual fan. They're crushing it as well. You want to subscribe to all those things. Hit the likes, hit the subscribes, leave the comments. As it says down there, we'd love to read your comments. And uh, I enjoy doing this with you, Jordan. It's fun to actually think critically about pro wrestling rather than I like this match and I didn't like this match. But th- those are viable opinions, though. They are, they are certainly viable opinions. And right. we argue about those in the wrestling according to Alba Discord. Okay. You could follow John on Twitter as well as threads. For now, yeah. A threads is a different handle. Threads is John underscore Alba. Oh, you didn't you were oh, you weren't even able to get your own name. Oh no. Well, it's your Instagram handle. And uh, I haven't been John Alba on Instagram ever because some guy from Argentina took it like ten and no, more than 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Is that your nemesis now? I the other John is. I, there's another Jonathan Alba out there who, who's a wrestling fan who comments on all my things. It's pretty funny, actually. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so. But you, you are on Twitter also I for am. the time Al- being. For now, yeah. Right, John Alba. I'm at Blender HD. And we'll see you next time for another episode of The Theory of Pro Wrestling.